ุทธังธรรมังสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังขังธรรมสังWhy is there laughter? Why is there joy when the world is on fire? Since you are shrouded in darkness, should you not seek the light? Why is there laughter? Why is there joy when the world is on fire? Since you are shrouded in darkness, should you not seek the light? Now the. Darkness. I think it's safe to assume that what is referring to here is the the darkness of of unawareness, the state of not knowing, and the light that he is encouraging us to seek is that state of selfless, open-hearted awareness that manifests as wisdom. I probably should mention that this particular uh, wording is my own rendering of the Dhammapada. Those of you that are, have looked at the Dhammapada will know that there are many different translations, and although a lot of them have been made by highly skilled, respected, qualified translators. Although they have been made by all these qualified translators, they, they differ significantly. And when I gave myself the task of producing a rendering of the Dhammapada, I, I looked at lots of different versions, and including the traditional stories associated with these verses, and emphasised the spirit of the verse rather than the form. As, as always in these matters, the There's the spirit aspect and there's the form aspect, and it happens in a lot of religions a lot of the time that the form tends to become rather dominant, and the spirit is forgotten. And I think sometimes that's the case in translations. And there's definitely a place for accurate literal translations. However, sometimes the accurate literal translations miss something as well. There's a place for both. If we just focus on, for instance, the form, like. Like with bowing, and you see somebody bowing, and on the level of form, what are they doing? Looking for something on the floor, or giving their back a good stretch, or and on the level of form, what's going on? It's not necessarily obvious. On the level of spirit, the eye is lowering itself in front of that which symbolizes the potential for realization of wisdom and compassion. <coughs> If all we focus on is the form, then we can miss the spirit. Anyway, that's a little comment on how it might be a good idea for listeners to the, of these talks to also check out other versions of the Dhammapada. I hope mine is accurate enough. I like to think it is. In the case of this verse, one four six, there's a particularly interesting story associated with it. Although these stories are generally considered as apocryphal, they're That doesn't mean to say that we're not going to learn something from them. And in this case, the the situation that is said to be where the Buddha 
uttered these verses was when one of his, or probably the chief female lay disciple, Visaka, had been given 500 female students to train in virtue. Visaka was renowned for her superior virtue and she was presented with these 500 female students and with the task of training them. And they probably, it seems like they weren't quite up to scratch. And then there was one occasion where they they let uh, Wisaka know that they said they wanted to go to the monastery and listen to some teaching from the Buddha. However, what they did was they hid bottles of booze under their clothes and by the time they reached the temple they were completely drunk and they were happy and clapping and dancing and the Buddha, as you can imagine, was not terribly impressed with these 500 women drunk in the monastery and he let them know about it in no uncertain terms. In fact, what he did was, according to the story, he used his psychic powers to scare them until they were sober. He frightened them powerfully until they were sober and then presented them with some teachings and and the good end to the story is that all of them became soda partners and they were, by the end of the 500 drunk women had arrived at complete unshakable realization of the way. Now, that's uh, a nice ending to the story. However, we shouldn't uh, assume that, that that's an excuse to go drinking with your Dhamma buddies. That's not at all the moral of the story because it's almost certain you're not going to meet a Buddha who's going to frighten you into being sober. You'll probably just stay drunk and remain heedless. I was listening to a, a podcast, a news podcast from a well-known broadcaster recently and they were attending the G20 summit in Bali and I guess I was a bit taken aback at how much they spent time talking about the various types of beer that were available to drink in Bali and and you, you think of the situation of these the world leaders, some of the most powerful people in the world spending probably millions of dollars, millions of pounds, millions of yen to travel to this luxury resort in Bali to talk about the fact that the world is on fire and to find solutions. And what are they doing? They're compromising their discernment and imbibing intoxicants. And What's that all about? Well, what it's about is that the collective culture that we live in tolerates that kind of foolishness and should we be tolerating it? Is that sensible? Is it okay to be that frivolous when we're in such a precarious state? So in this case where the Buddha delivered these teachings, it wasn't addressing the global situation, the economic crisis and political crisis and environmental crisis and things like that. He was, he was addressing the inner fires of greed, hatred and delusion. Those of you that have read perhaps the what's known as the Fire Sermon or the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, the, quite well known where the Buddha is, is talking about these inner fires and, and how this is, if we're looking for freedom, then we will encounter these fires. Greed, hatred and delusion need to be recognized, need to be understood, need to be dealt with. 
and not just not just by merely uh, moralizing about it, saying it shouldn't be this way. That's very easy to say it shouldn't be this way. What can we practically, realistically do when we encounter the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion? Not just ideas. And the idea of of hatred is an idea, it's a word, it's a concept. However, the, the passion that we can be burnt by when we're feeling hatred, our heart's pumping, we're sweating, we're and then if we don't really catch it properly, if we're not really there for that energy, it can end up going to our head and telling us all sorts of stories, terrible stories. Self-hatred can lead to suicide. Hatred of others can likewise lead to have disastrous consequences. These fires are not a small thing. And if we're serious about our practice, we need to be incredibly honest about what we're up to. We need to be really honest and careful about our actions and honest about whether we are really paying attention to our motivations, our actions. Like, are we committed to cultivating that quality of awareness which sees the mind tending towards indulging and denying. And last night, the chanting the Dhammachaka Sutta, giving the teachings on the middle way, the possibility of that perspective, that, that awareness which pays attention to, to the mind moving towards indulging and denying taking sides for pleasure and taking sides against pleasure. They're the two extremes that he pointed out. So are we really honest about that? Are we being really honest about that? Are we paying attention to that or do we think it's okay to compromise the precepts? Do we think it's okay to get drunk thinking this is relaxing because everybody else has been doing it for so long this stuff is poison? has a direct consequence on consciousness. The world is a mess. The world is on fire. It's a very precarious situation. We all know this. What are we doing about it? Are we still indulging in our habits of clinging? And so what's well, called for us not being overly harsh in ourselves when we make mistakes. That doesn't help. Being overly judgmental doesn't help. However, it does matter that we're making an effort to be really honest with ourselves. How much effort are we making? How, how real are we in our commitment? And how accurate are we in our commitment to training and awareness? Accuracy in the sense of, are we able to really study our reactions to the fires when they arise? Or are we just up in our heads like, the recent talks I've been mentioning several times and uh, how we tend to hide away in the attic and, and think about things. Well, sometimes we have to go down into the basement and, and deal with the, the noise and the, the ruckus that's going on in the basement and all the denied life that we've pushed down there. How able are we to live in the living room? Can we really welcome the way we feel? Can we feel what we feel in the living room? Can we feel what we feel in our hearts, in our chests? 
is our hearts open enough, soft enough, gentle enough, alive enough to really feel what we feel about life. Sometimes it might feel like it's overwhelming. Well, that's a sign that there's a backlog of denied life, whether it's you know, sadness, the, the mess that people get their lives into, and, and, and so much of it seems so unnecessary. So what do we do with the sadness? Can we meet that sadness in the living room, in our hearts, in that part of our being, where we really directly, honestly feel it, you know, not pushing it down and controlling it and, and not going up our heads and analyzing it. And We need to all be willing and able to meet ourselves when we're experiencing the distress of life, self-doubt. Can we feel what we feel about self-doubt or are we busy trying to think our way out of it or manage it by controlling it, keeping it at bay? And how do we know? How can we know? How can we know if we are indulging and clinging or not? How can we be honest about that? Well, one way of assessing whether we're indulging in habits of clinging or not is to see whether we're still blaming, like when we're suffering and something is difficult to bear. Are we able to really sit there and meet it and feel it the pain of disappointment, or whatever it is? Or do we immediately, does our attention immediately leap out and land on somebody else or something else? If we're still compulsively blaming, that's a good chance, a good sign that we're probably still clinging. When we cling to feelings like, painful feelings like sadness, if we cling to it, it becomes intolerable. And we don't want to think that we're doing this awful thing to ourselves, so we very easily projected outwards. Fear. Fear can be an aspect of intelligence. Fear in itself is perfectly normal. However, if we cling to fear, we come out terror, and we wouldn't want to think that we're doing such a thing to ourselves, so we blame something outside of ourselves. So that's one way of assessing, determining, are we being honest, are we being accurate in our cultivation of awareness, or are we still indulging in our habits of, of clinging? Are we, are we really dealing with the fires, or are we merely waving around the smoke? The smoke, that's, that's the thinking. And it can be terrible, and then you get smoke in your eyes, it can blind you. However, we can be waving away the smoke and effectively fanning the fires. We're not dealing with the fires necessarily. Dealing with the fires, we've got to come down into our chest, into a belly, and feel the pain of life without any resistance, without any analysis, without any judgment. It can start with analysis, absolutely. However, we need to move out of that and come deeper. And it's really hard work. Really hard work. Sometimes these teachings like the one, the Dhammapada verse tonight. Some people maybe don't want to listen to this, they want something more inspiring. If we really pay attention to what the Buddha is saying, this is inspiring. This is the truth that the Buddha is talking about. The world is on fire. This is dangerous, the situation. It's precarious. And there's a lot of people just being frivolous, 
not really paying attention. Are we going to go along with that, or are we going to and really honor our own deepest aspirations by cultivating increased honesty and accuracy? So the difficulty, the hard work that we're called to do is not back-breaking, physically exhausting work, it's the hard work of being honest. Are we really making an effort to pay attention to our relationship to experience, or are we just following our heedless habits of clinging? Like going to Sicily to soak up the sun and have a nice holiday and and just basically ignore the fact that we could be kind of building up malignant melanomas. I mean, what's the point of sitting in the sun? It can feel relaxing, but is it really intelligent? Is it suitable? And on deeper levels, and the, the way we relate to the feelings that we have, it's one thing to want to let go of dukkha, we all want to let go of dukkha. However, when we feel stuck in dukkha, when we feel stuck with painful feelings and we can't let go of it, are we honest enough and accurate enough in our perception to realize that the reason we can't let go of dukkha is because we indulge in sukha? We indulge in pleasant feelings. We want to let go of painful feelings, but we don't want to let go of pleasant feelings. We want to keep indulging in them. Let's have another nice pastry. Now, these things in themselves don't have to be a problem. However, it's the indulgence, it's the tendency to, to be dishonest and cling. At the same time, purport that we're trying to cultivate the Buddha's teachings on the middle way. And we need to make more effort than that. And sometimes the, the impression might arise in the mind that, for instance, if you talk about letting go of pleasure, people think, oh, you're not going to have any fun anymore. Letting go of pleasure does mean to say pleasure disappears. Remember when I was living with Ajahn Tate, my first teacher in Thailand, and as I heard the translation, he was talking to the villagers one night, and he was talking about just this point. He said, you know, when you're meditating, you've got to stop worrying about your children. And don't go thinking, well, if I stop worrying about my children, then I'm not going to love my children anymore. He said, that's Mara talking. That's Mara. That's the force of delusion that tells you by letting go of pleasant feelings that the pleasant feelings are going to disappear. No, it's a more mature, it's an informed, a skillful relationship to pleasant feelings, to feel what we feel without getting lost in it. And if we start to get the message, then, all right, that's why it's so difficult to let go of painful feelings, because we won't let go of pleasant feelings. We don't have to worry that pleasant feelings have disappeared just because we let go of them. It takes honesty and accuracy, and not just waving away the smoke, to really come into our bodies, into our hearts, into our guts, and to feel the fires. And be honest about our relationship to them. We are doing the suffering, the pain of life, that's natural. All beings experience pain, including the Buddha, we all experience pain. However, the Buddha didn't from the time of his awakening onwards, didn't have any suffering. Because what? Why? Because there was no clinging. There's another Dhammapada verse, verse 85, where the Buddha says, Few are those who reach the beyond. Most pace endlessly back and forth, not daring to risk the journey. 
few are those who reach the beyond. Most pace endlessly back and forth, not daring to risk the journey. So it is a risk. There's no question about it. The Buddha wasn't painting a pretty picture, saying this is this is a picnic. This is really hard work. However, there's a point to this work. What are we going to do? We're going to suffer in a way that leads to more suffering, or we're we going to suffer in a way that leads to freedom from suffering. We're going to suffer whatever happens. Everybody suffers to some degree. So what do we do with it? At this point we might also be asking, well, how do we adequately prepare ourselves for meeting these fires? In the monastery, we have a uh, we have a fire officer monk, and he periodically does a test. We sit around and we test each other. Who knows where the fire extinguishers are? Which fire extinguisher do we use for what sort of fire? In other words, we prepare ourselves, and, and, and even the fire officer from the fire brigade sometimes comes and checks us out and sees that we've got the, the smoke alarms working and torches in the right place. In other words, on the external level, we prepare ourselves to meet the fires. Well, the same principle applies. The fires of greed, hatred and delusion, we don't want to wait until they erupt. We want to skillfully prepare ourselves. So how do we do that? How do we skillfully prepare ourselves to meet these inner fires, threatening as they can be, overwhelming as they can be? Well, part of what we can do is to build up our storehouse of goodness and that's the big emphasis that the Buddha gave and the teachings on how to build up the storehouse of goodness that traditionally referred to as virtue and intentionally consciously developing that form of goodness that we call patience and sometimes we encounter the fires within and, and we want to go into fighting mode and yeah to some degree then that's appropriate we don't want to just you know, lie back and say whatever we've got some work to do however what sort of work do we do what sort of effort do we need to make if we're always in assertive mode trying to overcome trying to conquer then sometimes that's just fanning the flames and what sometimes what's called for is being patient Sometimes what's called for is being gentle, a form of goodness. Sometimes what's called for is that form of goodness that is referred to as forgiveness. We can harbor resentments. Still be 70 years old and still hating your parents for things that happened 65 years ago. A lack of honesty, a lack of accuracy of awareness. You don't realize how much harm we're causing ourselves. And when it becomes habitual, habitual resentment, denied resentment, can destroy our health, can damage our nervous system, certainly breed discontentment. It can be there in unawareness. We don't even know that we're harboring it. So it's a specific form of goodness. It's wise to 
cultivate, intentionally cultivate patience, intentionally cultivate generosity, intentionally cultivate forgiveness. These are not just beginner's practices, like the cultivation of the the, um, four divine abidings can be wonderfully nourishing and strengthening. You can think about them as building up a storehouse of goodness. You can also think about them as as bringing about an opening of the heart and a strengthening of the heart. If early on in life we, we learn to close down and deny pain and control suffering and rather than feel it and learn from it and let go of it and move through it, if we learn very early on in life to avoid and manipulate and control dukkha, then it's quite possible that our hearts have become closed and, and cold and as a result they've become feeble. And, and then when the fires flare up, we can be overwhelmed. And so strengthening, opening the heart, intentionally doing practices, not trying to achieve Nibbāna. Somebody came to see me today about talking about attaining Nibbāna. I said, don't worry about that. Don't need to be thinking about that. You can have Nibbāna as the goal. That's fine. It's like Edinburgh. You can have going to Edinburgh as the goal. And then you're on the journey. You're not thinking about Edinburgh, 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 all the way to Edinburgh. Edinburgh is not going to disappear because you stop thinking about it. Trust that Edinburgh is up there in Scotland and you can set out on the journey. What matters when we're on the journey is to be paying attention to the journey. So if we have Nibbāna, we have liberation, awakening as the goal, yes, that's absolutely fine. However, the journey is what's happening here and now. Are we able to really meet ourselves with what's happening or are we still caught up, lost in habits of indulging and denying? Are we able to read what's going on and see where we're clinging and how to learn how to let go? So building up these forces of goodness, learning how to strengthen and open the heart and the four divine abidings, holding to thoughts and and feelings, images of of selfless caring. The image the Buddha gave was a mother with her child. You see a mother with a child that selfless caring. She can't help herself, a mother. She's just focused on the well-being of this child, that, that beautiful expression on the mother's face, to hold that image in our hearts. Don't have to think about it. Make an just to hold that image and, until maybe you start to feel a feeling associated with that image. Selfless caring. Metta or karuna, empathy in the context of suffering. When there's, you look at somebody and maybe start feeling resentful or envious or annoyed or something, try imagining the tears flowing down their face. And all faces had tears flowing down them. All. Everybody who's born has cried tears. We're all in this together. We all suffer. If we can remember that, the power of empathy in the context of suffering and open the heart and strengthen the heart. Empathy in the context of joy or, or mudita. Taking delight in the well-being of others. Really feeling delight when others are doing well. Intentionally cultivating these 
forces of goodness and upekha, the equanimity, which is not so much a heart-opening force or as a, a grounding and stabilizing force. And these, these four divine abidings are exercises we can intentionally engage with so as to strengthen and, and open our hearts, so as to be able to meet the fires when we encounter them. And then the normal practices that we do regularly, like chanting practice, can help open and strengthen the heart. In short in-breaths and then long out-breaths. Devotional chanting can help. Breathing exercises themselves can help. Physical exercises. Maybe some of you have done rock climbing and takes a lot of focused attention. And, and if you're really making an effort, you can end up letting go of the controlling habits of the breathing and by the time you reach the summit of the climb there's an exhilarating feeling open-heartedness where did that come from it came from letting go of control paying attention being in the present moment it's worth if that happens it's worth noting all right this is the normal condition the closed-hearted cold-hearted condition is not normal we might feel it's normal we might be used to it however if we experience that open-hearted condition whether it's through being on a meditation retreat or for exercises or being in the company of good friends and to then reflect on how, how do we how do we sustain, maintain this state? So the strength of heart, so that when the fires do flare up, we're there for them and we're able to meet them. We don't have to turn away from them, avoid them. So the task is anybody who starts out on this journey in the beginning is probably inspired and encouraged and, and anticipates a lot of increased well-being. However, it's inevitable that sooner or later we're going to feel deeply challenged and it matters whether we prepared ourselves or not for those challenges. And the opportunity we have to meet together to support each other can be a great resource. Firefighting is always much more successful if we have a team. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.